0: Kia right, and welcome to Circuit Cast. My name is Mark Williams. Today I'm in Auckland at Elam School of Fine Arts where my guest is Alex Monteith. Kia ora, Alex. Kia ora, Mark. So, Alex, we're talking today for two reasons. One is because you've got a major new installation on the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. Coastal Flows, Coastal Incursions is a hugely ambitious show addressing 400 boxes of material excavated mainly from middens around Fiordland in the late 1960s by a young, was it a Pākehā archaeologist, Peter Cootes? Yeah,
1: yeah, Peter Kootz, yes.
0: And secondly, we're also doing a major update to your circuit profile, adding a whole lot of new works spanning quite a long period of time. So I guess today we're talking about the recent work, but also how the past has informed the present so there's so many complexities in this project to discuss, but I thought, first of all, we could start by asking you to outline what the viewer sees at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery when they walk into the project.
1: Yeah, kia ora, Mark, Mark, um, that's a good idea, but first, ko te ko te ko Atlantic te moana, ko ho ko te iwi, ko Carol to ko Bill to papa, ko... Tuatapu temwana takutamahini, call ve mana tapiha takutamahini, um, kei tapiha, uh, and aine, call Alex Monteith, takuangua, um, yeah, namahinui keakoto kato. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the viewer, as they encounter the work, um, There are two things really in the room. The very first thing you see actually is a large text didactic panel explaining the history of the project. But once you work your way past those introductions, you enter, um, you hit first, the four channel video installation, um, which is shot all around the lower reaches of Murihiku and Te Mimeo which is the outer and fjordland coastal region. Uh, And in that, Work there is about half an hour of material, and in the initial half hour is shot on the coast from the water in relation to Nahuaca, which is uh, coastal living sites. And then the other half of it is um, the work that has followed that, which is the work we've done across multiple shows inventorying the material that petakutes move from those Nahuaca or rock shelter areas in the outer fields to the museums, and the reason it ended up in multiple museums is he had completed work on a PhD in archaeology, in fact New Zealand's first PhD in archaeology, and then somewhere in around the 80s had left them into museums, and a little bit of a hint as to extra content in there, um, some well-known Ngai archaeologists, that would be Gerard O'Regan and also Brian Ellingham and as well uh, Professor Emeritus Ethel Anderson, are discussing the implications of what is held. So that that's all in a kind of film essay, which is the first thing that you kind of encounter. And just to your left of that, there's a large room that's been built, a room in which we're cataloguing, or more correctly, inventorying um, material that Peter Coates deposited to the museums. But due to their scale, those 400 boxes you mentioned, uh, there's even possibly slightly more than that. Wow. They're being worked on live in that space by there's sort of people that have worked in museums or they've come through archaeology degrees and we've particularly focused on having people working on this material who are Naitahu scholars where possible so that's happening in there with Koriana Wesley-Evans who is inventorying this material, also Bailey Smith and also Vicky Lenahan who has come through three iterations of doing inventorying work. So by inventorying it's Pallets of material have been sent up from Southland Museum and Art Gallery where the major holding of material from rock shelters has been held for the last, you know, 30-odd years. They've sent up, I think we've got about four pallets of material prepared. And, and most
0: of the material, it's uh, a combination of what kind of materials?
1: It's layers of the floor of the rock shelter and uh, mainly middens. And so within that you've got a lot of kaimawana, there's Cook's Turban, Power, every kind of, um, you know, muscle. But there are also kākāpō feathers, blue penguins. So it's a lot about kai, but also quite crucial to this. Uh, Athol Anderson has sort of noted that the caves distinctively looked after really fragile material. So there fatu there, so woven material, dog skin, to kind of go back a little bit, the cave overhangs, rock shelters, the Huaca, they have preserved uniquely almost these really fragile remains, which don't normally occur on archaeological sites in terms of how old the things are because on archaeological sites the weather can kind of get into them and destroy them, so you tend to kind of get the harder remains like stonework or, and some woods that last, or if they've been preserved by, say, a bog or in a wetland. But in this case... The cave environment has kind of meant that some of these really fragile things, and even through the early settler period and the sealer period, these pockets have turned up in a sealer's boot, these kind of things. So it gives a really good insight into coastal life, I think, over the period. Beautiful fish hooks, uh, composite fish hooks. And obviously, you yeah, there was a lot of fishing going on, of course. So
0: The act of taking these things from the place where they were found, I mean, what was the intention of coots?
1: Well, coots was... An archaeologist, so so he was going to the, the obvious living areas for that, which he would have regarded as having a, a seasonal in nature, um, given the weather envir- and environment down there. And so it's multiple sites, probably over 30 places that you can shelter and reside.
0: And he was acting on his own? or
1: He was acting on his own in the sense that his excavations were mainly with himself, but he did have people with him on occasion, like his wife was in with him at one point but they weren't working in that sense on the project so he was mainly doing that and then boxing up really if you imagine the cave floors coming out of those rock shelters that's what's in this collection it's actually got a lot of the spoil and remaining dirt as well has been brought into the museum.
0: You've made a lot of original work there as well, shooting video, Mm. and you've had a lot of offers from galleries, well, some offers, I don't know about a lot, but some offers to exhibit this video work, but um, you've actually turned around and made the case instead for more cataloguing of the materials that uh, Acute's excavated.
1: Yeah, that's true, and... So I mean I guess going to how the project's evolved. So it's had three iterations. The, fir- the first major iteration was at Sa- Southland Museum Night Gallery near Titanifa in s- around 2016. And initially we thought we could get through the whole inventorying. The museum did an assessment and said how much time it would take. And so we r- recruited the resources and got there with that idea. But initially they had wanted me to show video. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'd also was had, have always been regarded it really important to kind of work with iwi around distilling what is important about entering conversation about the implications of coots and that very early start of those conversations it became clear that um, it was very important to kind of sort out what was actually in the museum holdings Mm -hmm. and that was guided by Matua Michael Scarratt at Murihiku from Murihiku Marae and um, it carried on from there with active input from Matua Stuart Bull as well and Stuart is crucial in, that in in many ways but he also for context for the viewer has held the role of a kaitiaki really of the fisheries and moana space around those outer fields but the consensus there was that it's really important to understand what's held in the museum collection so Then it kind of hit a difficulty, and a logistical difficulty, because the collection that was uninventoried was over 360 boxes in Southland, but processing that amount of material was really hard, given their workspaces, and that partly had been why it hadn't been done, because their holdings had gotten really full as Mm -hmm. the collection had filled. And I was like, ah, well, there's so much exhibition space downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing a whole confluence of sort of things here. Like, we're the project could respond to the needs that Michael was expressing to sort of have insight into the collection which meant knowing what was in it really then also there was space downstairs but it was exhibition space and I thought well I can kind of hold the space but maybe we should look at doing that work and at that point uh, we pretty much immediately also sort of formed up a team of people to conceptualise what the pub of the project is and Huhana Smith has been a key part of that, Mm -hmm. um, forming the initial values and they've guided how the project's been shaped since then that's meant on a number of occasions not authoring artwork in the conventional sense of how people might know me, for example in terms of video work, but rather looking at a multifaceted sort of um, the project having a functional element and exploring what being practical about looking at the collection through trying to inventory it and balancing that with having an interest and background in background in and something like video. So of course those things came together and I started to document the process of inventorying. So it, it's really evolved, but a lot of that's just through talking with um, the likes of Michael Scarratt about what is actually really important. And that's been very important to me because I'm Tōiwi in this context. Uh, I should say not important to me, but it's important in terms of the function of the project and its relevance. So
0: It's funny that you've moved, uh, you know, at the start of your career you're interested in cinema, which has this traditional model of like a big crew and in a way you've kind of recreated that in the art context (laughs) with yourself as a sort of director
1: well i would dispute the the kind of note that i'm a director but i would agree with the fact that i did identify really early on that i was quite interested in i quite liked the way of working in teams that you get naturally on shooting things and working because you're either interviewing or talking to someone if you're doing documentary eh? or you're um you've got to work with a bit of a small crew to realize some kind of image so there's always like this aspect of working with people and the question of authoring something creative and I do like that process and I do like the, sh- the shared um, space of sort of co-production. So I'd say that I hold the space and that I've evolved the project through three iterations but it's looking for ways to spread and carry on more so making that midden material accessible to Naitahu researchers be they creatives or artists or just because at the moment that's, that material's not and. Yeah, the guidance was to move it out of that space where it was a bit of a sort of um, dead silent.
0: So what does it mean in the video work where your diaries are reproduced? Because that is putting yourself in the middle of the show. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things is the the text component in the show, there are over 1,200 intertitles that are handwritten by me. (laughs) But the arrangement of what that text is is quite diverse in the sense that sometimes I'm copying a historical note and it just the source is cited and other times it's poetic thoughts of mine and other times it's actually just giving the information preceding someone who's going to be in the shot so you just have those locating kind of hints the reason it's handwritten is just to do with i just wanted to have some sort of visual uh, quiet way of imparting information so not having everything being dialogue but also that it's just a bit provisional and that I can update it really quickly as well because there's so much of that material and also the viewer won't know this, but that work is changing between shows as I kind of refine or more things sediment down or more people need connecting into it. So Mm -hmm. um, like for example, the Kaiho Kai Collective did a Naitahu it's sort of like a uh, food project, that responded to the fact that this was midden material, and they they wanted to return the viewer to the notion that um, this is all kai, and so they did an eating project. Mm-hmm. But it was all the Naitahu styles, um, you know, kai preparation, and there's uh, like um, the poha, which is the, the big you've got seaweed food coming being cooked in the seaweed and things that is so delicious. Um, <laughs> but it was a very, it was also interesting, critically, because they'd formed their recipe from. Passing on Peter Coates's analysis of what food was there, and that the documentation of that I'm just recutting now into that that bigger work. So, and that's just responding to where Simon and Ron feel like they want that to go. So, it's quite responsive, and and that, those text intertitles make it possible to do that quite quickly.
0: Turning back to your earlier works, mm. it seems that this work, this latest work, coastal flows, coastal incursions, is in a way one bookend of your career work with moving image and another major bookend is chapter and verse which you made in 2005 about the troubles in Ireland I'm curious how much you knew about what you were getting into when you made that work chapter and verse (laughs) Uh,
1: I knew enough I knew enough about the troubles context to know a lot of the conversations would touch on difficult subjects I think I definitely didn't have an inclination for example that um no, you can't see ahead to everything. You can't see ahead to every situation of tension. And I mean, the thing that came out unexpectedly, but when I look back on it, you might say it's expected, was that I had some footage confiscated by the AUC in the middle of that, which is the, the then royal, it's the constabulary or the police, who had special powers to kind of confiscate material, um, and that became extremely difficult because that, in that moment, the, that chapter and verse material went from being what you could say is sort of cultural documentation of cultural events in an ethos and an epoch to potentially evidence in a court case and that hmm. that tension was you know like i i know that visual information can be used in various contexts but i think it, bec- it became so sort of obvious and activated with that it was it was quite gnarly so, so
0: you might have unwittingly captured faces in the crowd who would yeah. then be pointed out in a court context yep. and accused yeah, of it was being a- violent or you know disruptive or whatever
1: Well interestingly in that case it was um, footage of a riot unfolding and what the police were inferring was that I had foreknowledge of it and didn't ring it in and that's a crime but the only sort of wider context of that is is, so here's the part about the cultural landscape trouble spots as are known, or just points that are flashpoints they're kind of relatively known and I don't think yeah it was kind of collateral and all of that but it was also extremely difficult and I had to work pretty hard to get the film footage returned to me So, but by some and things of self-preservation everybody had been shot from the shoulders down or was wearing balaclavas <sighs> or, and all that stuff so it was actually, it sort of calmed down in the end. I worked it through some local politicians. So to go back to your question, I don't think you can f- fully know what you're getting into when you're working in a cultural space where people are in disagreement over land claims and land conceptions and resource use and that kind of thing in the in the Irish context, so there's some
0: pretty big names in that movie. <laughs> yeah, how do you how did you manage to get access to people like Ian Paisley?
1: Oh, uh, so yeah, Mark's talking about Ian Paisley and possibly um, Bishop Edward Daly. There, Ian Paisley was incredibly difficult. I had the sense that I wanted to talk to them as kind of figureheads of particular ethos. So I sent emails, you know, and Bishop Edward Daly got back to me and said, oh, you'd be delighted to meet him, and blah, 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 and it was kind of quite easy to talk to. Ian Paisley, on the other hand, being an active politician, that their press office didn't really ever get back to me, so I finally thought, well, the only way, and I really do need to talk to him, um, was I went to his church. I even wore one of those hats that, um, if you know me, you'll know how <laughs> wild that is. <laughs> Went to the sermon and I I met him before the sermon. So I actually walked through into the church in his preparation period, um, asked if I could go back. and I, So I had to actually go there and take a real punt and then he agreed then to an an interview and then I went back up to Stormont and interviewed him in the parliament, you know, in Stormont. So to get that interview was probably me going as far out of my comfort zone as you could ever imagine.
0: It's sort (laughs) of gonzo journalism, uh, Alex Monteith style. Honestly, it
1: was... (laughs) It's was like being a drag, but yeah, (laughs) that was the hardest interview to kind of get in terms of the practicals of the project.
0: It seems to me within Coastal Flows, you've kind of got this built-in kind of feedback loop with all these people being part of the project. What was the outcome of Chapter and Verse? How do you gauge the success of a project like that? Mm. What was the kind of feedback? What did it generate?
1: Well, with Chapter and Verse, it was kind of four years of sort of observation, really put into that space around what marches were happening, what what points of tension. And then it had also, it had these sort of quite quiet studies of border spaces as they were changing. But the, the exhibition audience for that was mostly here or Australasia, like it's been shown in Australia where they've got a large Irish diaspora and then the critical interest. And so...
0: Was it just because you are based in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, I think it's just more where my networks are. Mm. It's hard to gauge in terms of impact. It's been in a lot of shows that are dealing with political art.
0: You mean outside of New Zealand or within New Zealand or both? New Zealand and Australia. Right. Yeah. Is it a disappointment to you that it wasn't shown in Ireland so much?
1: I don't think disappointing. There was a realist in me that knew that most of the audience at that time period just wasn't interested in looking at something that was looking at something so obvious in a way in the culture. Right. So it wasn't a big drive to kind of push it into that space. But I also was pretty, feeling pretty sensitive to... There were some big changes happening in the cultural landscape in terms of the demilitarisation. And I knew it was... A, well, I felt like it was important to document it. It was changing reasonably fast. And in my area, Derg, where I'm from, as you would have heard in that PPR, um, in Ireland, the they were demilitarising, but we were one of the last small towns to demilitarise. So we still had a relatively high number of border patrols and things. So... I think maybe there's more of a case for me being interested to show it in Ireland from now onwards because they're actually looking at their past now in general, more so. You know, you've got um, quite a lot more artwork, for example, coming out looking at that period as well with the work on Bernadette Devlin and, yeah, maybe now's a good time to kind of be thinking of that.
0: You took um, a bit of a left turn uh, after that work into (laughs) uh, adrenaline, uh, (laughs) motorbikes, surfing jet airplanes that kind of thing was that a reaction to making
1: that kind of work to some degree it was it was just so intense and I also always have got that second thing going on where I'm interested in contemporary culture and so you know new technologies I'm probably always interested in land and so how sports is evolving and the way that it relates to land and land space that kind of went into the surfing, motocross, you know, that's about how you practice a kind of movement through space and then also I got interested with sur- the surfing works and um, how there's new ethics around deriving income from what you would say might be land or ocean places and I'm really reluctant to use the word landscape as well. So I'm not using it, but mentioning it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're performance works, really, aren't they, as well? They're performances in situ that yeah. you're... You yeah,
1: know. so that's that's focusing on what which communities are being quite kind of active within a place. I really wanted the um, you know suite of artworks to be acknowledging non-interior spaces and to be primarily activating the viewership within a water space. Or I just felt like there's sort of some crucial things happening in those spaces but going back to the motorcycle works that was i was quite interested in a feminist kind of look at that space where you know where are the women in this space and where where they are there what are they doing and that's how i ended up working with jill clendon who's was in that piece that was in the walters prize Mm -hmm. um i looked at what she was doing in the racetrack and we did some works with her there you know 300k an hour (laughs) 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 and then we did another work with her that became the work that was in the walters prize which is um it's like a passing maneuver, kind of giant, great, big, long passing maneuver on a motorway. But yeah, so I did need a break from multi-chaptered kind of shoots and really intense sort of emotional subjects and also the, the representation tensions that are in that space.
0: A lot of negotiation. And, yeah, it's uh, a lot
1: of negotiation. Yeah. Yep.
0: It's interesting you mentioned uh, the place of women within motorcycle culture. I was wondering about that in surf culture. I got no idea about surf culture. Mm. I mean, is it a level playing field for men and women within surf culture? I have no idea.
1: I'd say historically absolutely not. It's It wasn't culturally a level playing field. The ocean, of course, is the great leveller Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in it. Definitely, uh, you know, it doesn't matter the gender. You're going to receive the same beating either way or the same good ride. But um, no, the culture has only recently just sort of come to a point of pay equity for professional sports people. But I ended up noticing that... In New Zealand um, there had been a move to bring the sort of ASP Pro Women's Tour here and I wanted to make a work the minute that happened because that was a bit of an acknowledgement of Aotearoa as an important place within the question of waves and then it was interesting to see who was coming, what, what were they up to, how was professional life for them. So I did a work that kind of uh, developed a surf competition actually, like a live event that the surf going public went to, that went to see the ASB Pro Tour women's finals, and then my event happened just before it. But where it overlaps, it, it happens in a, in a space, in a place that's not very far from Patehaka, and i had been working there with local time, and so, uh-huh. you know, this, these things overlapping are sort of what interests me. It's sort yeah. of prior, prior to any of that being interacted with as a surf culture uh, coming in there, then you go a little bit of a step back and it's dairy farming, but that all was an outflow of the settler militia wars and so yeah, I'm interested in those layers of history.
0: Speaking of war Uh oh <laughs> yeah. Pause. No, you work with those you work with military aircraft. I mean there's a machines made to kill people. Mm, yeah. uh, how do we how do we read that kind of history and intent in those machines when you make those works with those machines?
1: Yeah. Okay, so that's a really good question. Uh, My interest in the Air Force, especially in the Iroquois or helicopters, really did derive from my experience of growing up in Northern Ireland where the helicopter was a large part of the texture of what was around. So, of course, I was interested in, when I was politicised in Aotearoa, about who had access to airspace. So in thinking about the difference between New Zealand Defence Forces and what was happening in Ireland or what had happened. So it kind of was a question of more like, well, how? what is interesting to respond to within the New Zealand Defence Force sort of scenarios. And one of the slightly interesting dimensions I found here was that there is a large peacetime role that the um, military plays around search and rescue. And so that worked. Yes, it's defence force, but also the particular exercise that I was involved in is a it's a search and rescue training exercise and flying up to peaks for search and rescue people off mountains. And you're in Tewai you're in the South Island, and they are the most powerful players in terms of their military reach and how airspace is conceptualise. Mm-hmm. Um so that was why I had the interest in it. But I'm interested in making multiple bodies of work that look at different cultures of presence. So that was the Defence Force kind of work where we worked with the three choppers simultaneously and kind of composed a flight routine. And it it really kind of looks at questions of who gets to do the asking, what does it mean, to what limits and boundaries were there. And I really had to do that through exploring that with them. And there were a lot, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. So that's where the interest comes from in high technology. Because Northern Ireland and Ireland, but Northern Ireland and Derry they were one of the first places in the world to be surveilled with video surveillance. So the question of what is being surveilled with video has always interested me through time, and that's evolved mm-hmm. significantly now to where say, where, say, somewhere like London is much more highly surveilled, but through CCTV camera that's is more attached to security on buildings. But if you network all of that together, the whole place is pretty much covered by the video. Yeah, so it's all those things kind of together. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very
0: complicated. It doesn't really make
1: it much easier for the viewer, I don't, it doesn't make it too easy for the viewer I don't think to kind of maybe discern all of that and I know when I've had that work and thought about showing in Asia, in Asia some of the Asian contexts or around Vietnam that particular helicopter note of the Iroquois of course is a pretty traumatising note and it's quite hard for people from that part of the world to imagine the Defence Force here the breadth of work they do and the range of it because they are a strike force and can be, but a lot of the the bread and butter activity is around search and rescue as well. And you have to get past generalising to understand mm-hmm. certain aspects of looking at any, any culture.
0: I'm curious about the way that you've made your most recent work and that it's been made in instalments. And it seems to me to be reflective of a culture in New Zealand where artists moving image work is underfunded. And so the way you've coped with that is to, as I say, make it in instalments which I can imagine must be frustrating on some levels, but on other levels maybe gives you time to pause, reflect and think about the next move as opposed to writing a funding application which supposedly maps out what you're going to do in the next four years or whatever. What are your thoughts on this way of working?
1: Yeah, I think that in my dream world that project would have been a multifaceted project that had a research element, that had filmic elements and that had also the money to deal with the collection in the state that it was in, and those things would be resolved. But it would, it would have been a lot of money. And then the, that particular project around the various names and iterations of coastal flows, coastal incursions, it has had to adapt because the scale of the job changed as we got into the work. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that being able to have it evolve over chapters, which is a sort of a way of working, I developed in chapter and verse, that was like three or four return shoots to the same locations. It did really suit it because also the conversation timelines that you need to have, it's physically a large piece of whenua as well and just having enough time to A, go to those remote locations and think and consider the implications of it, go and meet people. It adds up to a lot of time and I think the project's become kind of better at allowing the time to elapse. and not being too. I'm not too stressed about it happening over multiple projects and there's a big opportunity with that. Spreading over multiple projects too because it could find new family each time it evolved because somebody within the current one would meet or connect with somebody and then suggest to bring them into the next iteration. And so that that came about through, say, Gerard O'Regan who suggested Athol Anderson and the, um, you know, there were the two of them but they'd worked well together on previous projects in the 2016 version of this that occurred at St Paul Street Gallery and they curated the taoka selection that you see and when you go to the show, that's of fish hooks mainly. And then Gerard suggested c- connecting with Brian Ellingham as a key touchstone within the project. And then because there's another iteration, you can do that connection. I think it's it's a really great way to work. In terms of its relationship with the funding, it's it's totally helped to do it that way, to sort of move the conversation, say, to just another area to pick up a bit of energy and interest. And So the St Paul Street show wasn't strongly funded by any external arena, but it was quite important in terms of connecting with Gerard O'Regan who was up here at the um, James Sanado Research Centre, and then it kept that family working together through that project, but we didn't get lots of inventorying done because there wasn't a lot of funds, but we still did do that action, and then it created a kind of a link to what's on at Dunedin Public Art Gallery, which is a much more substantial through the Creative New Zealand grant. And the artisan residency programs so are much more substantially, substantial creatively, because I've added new video content, but also we're doing a lot more in the inventorying as well, in terms of the live performance of that inventorying So that's hopefully going to make a decent dent in the what's held in the collection. <laughs> Yeah.
0: The way you talk about the project being quite open to other people coming in and, mm. you know, presenting kind of new shoots, if you like, really sort of seems to equate with what you said earlier about refuting that term director, if you like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but how will you know this project's finished? And, you know, will you or what point will you step away from it?
1: I think that the project may not ever be finished, but I think that we have got a specific aim that uh, Gerard kind of, sort of helped me conceptualise where it would be good to take the inventorying. and it's mag to say which is that we would like to get the inventory to the point where a PhD student could if we can't complete it we hope to complete it within the show but if we can't um, it's it would be significant to, achievement to get it to the point where a PhD student or some, something more of that scale could then complete it it's just that it was beyond it, it was yeah so success within the initial um, co of making that collection a bit more cohesive for Naitahu researchers and with Naitahu researchers was a lot to do with making it knowing what was there. At the point where it does that, then I think it's it's reaching a point where that part can be kind of complete. And then the question is, you know, yeah, what shape and form the po- the analysis of that material and turning it into creative responses might be and a lot of people that were involved in the project would really like to go back into to Te Rakifan or Fjordland area and have a look at the areas if they hadn't been in there already. We're going to hui to that concept as well, so we're going to have a meeting and um, probably hold a half day Wananga style event somewhere within the show coming up, like in about a month's time, reflecting on what's come out of the Otago Museum's holdings and developing the future steps. So I may not be able to say what the future steps can be as myself as an autonomous statement (laughs) because it's really held within a whole bunch of people that are part of it, including the new people that are connected. So that would be Rachel Wesley at Otago Museum, um, she's Creator Māori there, and also Bailey and Koriāna and Vicky who are working on the inventory, and you know, so yeah keep you posted okay <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll come back and do another podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thanks very much Alex thanks for coming thank along and being so generous with your thoughts and uh, all the best with the show as it carries on through its various iterations and uh, thank you all there for listening
1: thank you back